Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to my podcast. Um, as you well know, I'm doing a series of uh, the arts and crafts, um, predominantly uh, speaking to street artists from New York. And now we're dovetailing into uh, art dealers or artists um, in the UK. So this is going to be shared on my podcast as well as Woodbury House. And the next guest I've got in front of me is someone that ticks both both boxes. For me, when you're trying to define someone as being a success, the man in front of me uh, has got passion uh, towards what he does for work. He's made a very, very good, good career out of it and made a good amount of money. He's travelled the world. He's been into some insane places. He's connected with the, some of the best people around the world um, and the guy full of energy. So as far as uh, success goes, this is the guy you want to be listening to today. Tony McGee, thank you for coming aboard on the podcast, mate. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I want to share my, my life with all of you. I want to tell you uh, about me and how it happened and why it happened and how it can happen for you. Okay, so it's the same for you as it was for me. But uh, listen closely, and I'll, yeah. I'll and I'll try and take you along my my journey. Now, now, Tony, look, I, I know um, I, I know you as a photographer, but you're more than that. You were involved with fashion, photography, and also you um, you put some films together. I know you shot people like Prince Nassim Hamid, David Bowie, Kate Moss. Wham! I mean, these are just a just a few 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 of the people. Before we go into that, a small little short story. We were just about to talk about uh, a story that you've got circulating that really cool Daytona you got in your wrist. As you well know, I've you know I love my watches myself. Yeah. So I'm I'm intrigued to hear about this story. How you come across across okay, that so watch? We're talking about the Rolex Daytona. Here's yeah. my story on a Rolex Daytona. It's a nice one. So uh, way 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 back in the early 70s i was i was assisting a photographer called terry o'neill terry o'neill was a great guy big name. sadly passed away huge name and a huge success because <clears throat> he had the brightest and loveliest personality he had the bluest eyes he had just a way with everybody he was kind had a little irish twang in the voice and he took took a nice photograph okay so here's the thing um this guy comes in the studio one day who i don't know much about his name's Paul, and he's asked to sit on a stall while uh, Terry organises the lights, and Terry's ready to go, and he said, go and ask Mr. Newman to give you his watch because it's catching the light and I don't want it. As in, in Paul Newman, the racing car so driver. This is the actor and racing car driver, Paul Newman. And Paul Newman was wearing uh, this very good-looking watch, that had been created for him by the Rolex watch company in Geneva. And it was called the Paul Newman Daytona. Now, iconic. Absolutely iconic. But let's let's put the thing into perspective. Not everybody was interested in that watch. To be honest, if you were being gifted a watch by your company (coughs) or your wife might buy you a watch for your wedding anniversary, she wouldn't have gone and bought the Paul Newman Daytona. It was deemed as a kind of sleepy, overcomplicated-looking chronometer, and it was not the watch to have. The watch to have, and the watch that Sean Connery wore, was a a more simpler-looking timepiece and more direct and didn't have the look of someone who worked on an aeroplane or a ship or needed to take uh, time notes. Right. So I take the watch, I put it safely down next to the Hasselblads, and I'm keeping an eye on it. So approximately 10 years later, so 
So we go to, yeah, okay, let's take it. 71, we go to 81. And Linda Evangelista comes to my studio and she's wearing a Rolex Daytona. And it's um, a self-winding 1977 watch and it looks good on her. I'm looking. And then the next day I bump into a photographer friend of mine called Patrick de Marchelier and he's wearing a Daytona as well. And I'm quickly at putting this together as something that this is a kind of fashion status symbol. And this is before Arsene Wenger, <clears throat> any of the Chelsea Arsenal players, even knew about Rolex Daytona. Now every black taxi driver has got uh, a, a Rolex Daytona. And good luck to them as well. I love black taxi drivers, by the way. Anyway, <laughs> that's good. My mum's a black black yeah, taxi driver. Of I do. She, she's not doing too well at the moment, though. But it's bloody no, good. I, I sympathise for them, and I just want to put, you know, I just hope that a mayor, the new mayor, or the the other mayor, whatever mayor, is going to come in and look after them. I need to look after little, this bloody mayor that we're in. Give him a little bit of furlough. Give him a cab for nothing or something. You know, come on. Anyway, <laughs> let's move back to the Daytona. So I quickly accessed the Daytona and bought myself. Back in the day, a steel white face Rolex Daytona. And I can't tell you the amount of attention that watch got over the years. Well, if I was on an aeroplane, I remember going to a market, a fruit market. And what, what year was it, the, the watch? The, my, the watch I bought was about 81. 81. Brand new. Yeah. Box and papers. Yeah. I bought it in a little arcade in off Bond Street. Lovely. Yeah. Cost me uh, three eight fifty. Burlington Arcade down there. Uh, actually, it was in the Royal Arcade. Okay. And the watch company no longer there. It's been taken over by the Watch Club. And do you remember how much you paid for it back then? About three 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 thousand eight hundred. Nice. And how much do you think that watch will be worth today? I believe that watch is worth around about twenty two today. Nice. Thousand. Yeah. It's. It was a. Oh. It was a Zenith movement. So actually, I would say put another six on that. So yeah. I'd say you're talking about twenty five, twenty six thousand. I couldn't stand Zenith movements. I felt embarrassed if anyone asked me if that was a Rolex movement or a Zenith movement. And if you had a Zenith movement back in those days, you had to quickly change it. So I went on to buy approximately seventeen Rolex Daytonas. I did. I, I collected them. I collect Leica cameras. I collected those. I had lovely cars. I was making a great deal of money. I'll tell you how I made the money. In a second or two, just bear with me. And if I'm boring you, I'll try and I'll, I'll try and keep it as, as as brief as I can. But I'm Irish, and I like to get into the detail. You won't buy a horse from me without me explaining exactly the family line, how much grass it ate that morning, and I'm going to give you the honest tale. So here's the thing: I've got a passion for Daytonas, and I quickly get myself a golden steel, white face, and yellow face, a gold face. So I've got those. Then I move on and I buy a solid gold Rolex Daytona, which is a bit of a piece. And to be honest, uh, in my fancy land, if I was in Italy and I was by a beach and it was, it was and it was very expensive, I'd put it on just to look like all the other dicks. But here's the thing: uh, it didn't stop there. I went on to buy others, and I was buying uh, vintage, and it was the vintage world that really opened my eyes. And Today, I still have many, many Daytonas. I have many, many friends who love watches. It's a real passion. Uh, I've turned that passion towards my son, my son Max, and Jack. They both love Rolexes. And who doesn't 
I mean, who who doesn't deserve a Rolex watch? I want to. I want the whole country. If I was prime minister, come on, you can have a jab in your right hand, <laughs> in your right arm. Sorry, but on your left hand, I'm going to put a Rolex on you, and that's what you get. That's the kind of country I'm going to run if you're going to vote for me. Boris is nice, dodgy haircut, but let me tell you, I could run this place beautifully. You wouldn't have any smashing up cars and stuff like that. No statues would come down. Everyone would live in a state of complete harmony because I've had too much good fortune in my life and I want to share that good fortune. I want to share it. I want people to realise how good it feels to make a hell of a lot of money, make some piece of art and take a great photograph and... Ah, oh, I mean, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure, and I, I and I look at I look into the eyes of God sometimes, and I say, please don't take me away just yet. I'm having too much of a good time. I just want to say this: it has been a tough year, so my heart goes out to all the people who have sadly they've <coughs> left us, and it's been a it's 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 been awful, yeah. really, and that's a, a it's an understatement. I've said that, but you know, I'm 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 confident we're getting back to good times. Yeah, confidence is rebuilding definitely. So um, I've listed some names there: David Bowie, yeah. Wham, Prince Nassim. I mean, for me, Prince Nassim's so cool because I'm a boxer, as you well know. In actual yeah. fact, I've got yeah. a little bit of a black eye still from the last Byron match. Um, <laughs> you've interviewed some. Sorry, you've been around some of the, some of these great people. Um, from an outsider, people looking at looking at it, and they're going to just assume, yeah, of course you're going to be a success because look at the people that you're you're, you're taking photos of. But it, it didn't start there, did it, Tony? No. How did you begin? Was you always into arts? Was you always into photography as a lad? Or how did your life progress into it? I grew up in a really nice house. Not We're not talking about Hollywood. We're talking about a normal house in Millbank in Pimlico. And there were seven kids, and, and my parents were amazing. I mean, they're absolute beauties. I was so lucky to have such a beautiful mother and an intelligent father, non-violent, happy, beautiful people. And they, they taught us lots of great things. And most of all, they taught us to be individuals. And because we were in a large family, you can get a bit clubby in a large family. But no, we all grew up to become great individuals. <coughs> Three of my sisters were at the Playboy Club in Park Lane. They were Playboy Bunny girls. In fact, Sue was voted the best-looking Playboy Bunny in the world, which... Which is tough for a girl because you know that 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 sets you on a course of some some kind of uh, fantasy land. Uh, anyway, we, we 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 kept an eye on her, and she's fine today. She's fine, but she met some rogues because she was too good looking. And if a girl's too good looking, she's going to meet some villains, and she's going to meet some actors who aren't acting, and there's no Oscars on the mantelpiece, and she just meets the wrong ones. So just to just 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 to talk about how I got into photography. So the, the camera in the house was deemed as a happy thing because it would come out on birthdays and Christmases and stuff like that. So I'd pick up the camera and take a picture of my, my brother and my sister and a brother and five girls, five, five, five girls, two boys, seven of us. And I would take a picture and I would go down to the chemist and get it developed. And it was fascinating to get this, you know, this moment brought back in, you know, on the tape, to put the prints out on the kitchen table and everyone gathering around you know it was toast in the toaster and there was a kettle boiling and it was all a normal kind of domestic situation tony blackburn was on the radio and stuff like that and uh was it johnny walker one of the two dudes and we look at the pictures on a sunday afternoon and it was great and i thought oh, this is for me this is where i want to be i want to be a photographer because it brings so much extraordinary joy to people and it's such a science that I still today cannot believe 
because these pictures they hurtle out of they they come out of the darkness to you. They're incredible. And for you to take a picture of whether it's on your phone or, or or using a nice camera, and then to look at that an hour later is absolute. It's wizardry. It's like something that's come out of mag, the magic box. It's amazing. So I stuck with that. Uh, built a portfolio and uh, as much as I could. You know, I was at school. Um, I have to add that I wasn't um, I wasn't that <laughs> well as a kid. I, had, I I I caught pneumonia. It was weird. I don't know how. I think I've been to to the movies with a bunch of my pals and we got caught in the rain. It was freezing in the cinema and I was chilling. I remember my teeth chattering trying to eat pop. You try and eat popcorn when your teeth are chattering. It's really difficult. <laughs> anyway, I, I went home and then I went to hospital and I had double pneumonia. And the priest came in. He said, "Oh." Anthony, he's an Irishman, so I'll give you a tea. Oh, Anthony, God bless you, my boy. You're not long for this world. I'm so sorry. Your dear mother here. And I looked at my mother, and she's not weeping. And I looked at my dad, and he's not weeping. And I said to him, I said, you're, kid, you're, you're kidding me, Father. You know, please, I mean, come on. If, my, if I was going to die, my parents would be weeping. He said, well, they're going to be soon. And he said, well, you're, you, 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 you know, I've learned something here today. One, I'm going to live... <laughs> To defy you, wrong. <laughs> and they gave me some penicillin, and and and, and, and all was fine, Father. So if you're listening, I'm fitting well these days. Right. So I went back to school, and I said to my teacher, "I can't stay here. There's nothing that I'm interested in at all. I don't want to do algebra. It doesn't make any sense to me. All I'm interested in is shutter speeds and f-stops." So don't give me the algebra nonsense because I'll pick it up as I go along. And, and, and I've launched myself into an Irish accent here. I'm going to stop there and go back to my London accent. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, uh, I managed to get a job through my father. And what's the matter with nepotism? Get your dad to help you out, for God's sake. Number one rule. If you can't find him, then ask your mum and say, look, I need some help. So when, you, when your dad walks the head of the rank organisation, Theo Cowan, who he was in the army with. And Theo is a six-foot-two man. He looks down at you with your tiny little face and your 14. I said, yes, I have a job for you. Heaven starts to open for you. So I went to Pinewood. And the day I arrived, the first person I met, literally within seconds, was Roman Polanski. He was standing there. He was directing a film. And he was talking to some guys. And he was making a film called Macbeth. And this was Pinewood Studios in 1969. And I said, sir, would you like a cup of tea? He said, oh, you're the tea boy. I wonder what you're doing here. He said, yeah, I'll take a tea. And it's on you. The tea better be good. So I gave him a, a, I gave him a proper tea, a good cup of mug, a mug of tea. And um, he liked it. And he passed the good word around that if you want a cup of tea, you just go to Anthony, Anthony. Shortened to Tony, and I'll tell you when I was shortened to Tony along the way. So I'm Anthony at this point. And Anthony makes the tea, and then Terry O'Neill's introduced me to photographer, and he calls me Ant, and I'm getting on well because I was a kind of like a cute kid, to be honest. I was. I had like a kind of mop, moppy, moppy hairdo, and I was very helpful. You know, I was, I, I promise you, it was nothing for me to clean up. I, I, my pal is my broom. I used to hold the broom and hold it like a beautiful woman and dance with it. My, my, the broom became my pal and, a, and a, 
and the tea urn was my friend. And so, you know, if you're given these kind of tasks in life, get over it. Do them well. Because don't save the other stuff for when you you only want to do well. Do well in everything. Okay. So Terry was very happy. I went back to live in London with my folks again. I was living in Ivor in Buckinghamshire for the Pinewood gig. And I went to work in O'Neill's studio, Seven Plough Place. Seven has always been a great number for me. And I'll mention it a few times as we go along. Seven Plough Place, just off Fetter Lane. And it was heaven. And everyone came in. Everyone. The Beatles arrived. Uh, you name it, they were in there. I mean, my God. Sean Connery was his best mate. Roger Moore used to just come by for beers. And it was an amazing place. And I remember one day this dude arrived and he was like a kind of great-looking man. And I remember thinking what a great American accent he had. And his name was Frank Sinatra. And Terry took pictures of St. Frank. And he was the only person who was allowed to take pictures of Frank. And he had this great friendship with Frank Sinatra. And I used to look at them, um, kind of working together. And, and I really thought, right, I am going to have that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to work with people. They're going to feel so good in my studio. I'm going to make them feel great. I'm going to be able to take their valuable watch off their wrist, put it to one side. I'm going to... I'm going to work at what Terry O'Neill had, was this charm. Um, I wanted to be a better photographer than Terry. I have to say <coughs> this now. Terry O'Neill is, is a great photographer, but he's nowhere near as good as me. Nowhere near. And he knows that. He once said to me, once I was, when I was really hitting the vogues, he said, you're great, your pictures are great. And I, and I, and I really thought, what a, what a wonderful, what a wonderful um, compliment that was. And it helped me. By yeah, the he's way, a very, very good photographer. Yeah. A friend of mine, uh, Bran uh, Simerson, who does the AK-47s, he'd done a collaboration with him, I think, only months before his death. Yeah. Um, and it was presented at Annabelle's. I thought it was a really, really cool collab. Yeah, yeah, I know. He, he was doing a few of those. He's great. Terry had a great, great yearning to earn money. Yeah. You could, you could if, if you approach Terry O'Neill with a commercial idea, and this was even back when I was working with him, he'd say yes. This, this, this actually brings me on to a really, really important, important point because typically, let's, like some of the artists that I've interviewed, LA2, Out Diaz, Cope2, uh, the list is endless. If I had the opportunity to interview Richard Hamilton, sadly he passed away in 2017, most of the common things they were saying is they wanted to get known, but they also wanted to express their self-creativity, you know, the, the creative yeah. side of their minds. They don't really talk about money, but then when I've listened to podcasts with photographers, they are more, I don't want to, excuse the pun, tarnish everyone with the same brush here, but it seems like the photographers are a bit more business-like. They are. Would you say that's quite a common trait? 100%. Because you're very business, you know. I'm very business. I think business all day long. I don't, if I'm taking a photograph, I don't think about an ATM or I don't think about checking my phone to see if money has arrived. I don't do that. I switch off and I'm in the zone. But when I wake up in the morning, my first thought is money. My second thought is photography. And I take photographs to make money. I love photography. Nobody loves photography and can talk photography more than me. I promise you, I challenge you. Come and, come and meet me and we'll talk about it. And you'll go home and you'll be tired because I'll have talked to you under the table. 
the thing is, um, it's important as an artist to understand the power of money. Helmut Newton once said to me, um, I was lucky enough to meet some great photographers as well. So I met Helmut and Helmut Newton said to me, I only want to talk about money with you. Don't ask me about lenses or Rolleiflexes or putting the film in the liquid. I want to talk about the money. And it was great. I thought, wow, this is, this is superb. And I think, you know, don't just be happy with you because you've just managed to get yourself a nice Canon camera and you, you're checking out the dudes in Hankney and you're walking along and something looks nice, it's, it's flapping in the wind and it's made of blue plastic. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Work it out from a financial consideration first. Where is the picture going to be displayed? Get yourself a little space, get a gallery, get to know gallerists, get to know people who can show your work before you've even taken it. You can come into me and you can say, I've got this amazing <coughs> set of photographs, and if I believe you so much, I don't even have I don't even want to see the photographs. I just know they're good. I um I was told a, a quote once, and you've probably heard this quote time and time again. It says, Begin with the end in mind. And the fact the fact of, of that quote is the end in mind, as you're saying there, is to generate revenue and to make money. But in between that, you've got to think about how to give value to your demographic or to your audience. Yeah. So you're always thinking about the pay, the pay yeah. but also how to give your value to your customers, clients, your collectors yeah. in the interim. Yeah. We talk about this a lot on the terraces at the Arsenal at the moment. We've got a, series, we've got a, a level of player on the Arsenal who is being paid a fortune per week. I mean, let's get real here. I mean, a massive amount of money. I don't want to know that the money comes from Sky or it comes from, 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 from Adidas. I don't want to know it's irrelevant. The deal is, man, that when you check your account each week, you know, it's, it's, it's been, it, it, you've had 153,000 added to it on a weekly basis and you're still not popping the goals in. Where is your... I mean, I'm sorry, but where... Where, where, do you, where, where do you not find that you owe, you owe something to yourself, that you, you've arrived, you've, you've had the financial point taken care of, the financial freedom is now there, the Italian thing is outside in the car park, the home in Hampstead, all right, you haven't unpacked and you're still playing video games in only one room, it doesn't matter, but you've got all the money. Now you get on that pitch and you score those goals. And that's what I do as a photographer, a filmmaker. You settle with me the money, I check, and I see it's arrived. I tell you what, man, there ain't any leaving the studio. There's no, like, I'm only doing six shots and I leave at six. Are you joking? I work till two, three, four in the morning. I go back again. If anything's not right, I reshoot. I get it right. So that's the difference. Money, 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 all organised, very happy. And I can't tell you, I've gone on a plane to go to India with a bunch of people for, for Vogue or something like that. And I've announced in the, in the lounge, the good news is that we're going to work for Vogue for a week and we're all going to get about 70 quid, okay, by the time you paid your agent. But here's the thing, I've got an advertiser here from Paris. It's going to give you five grand each a day. So I'm looking at hair, makeup assistant everyone you're getting five a day i'm getting 15 and it's going to make it into a trip for us isn't it and they they look at me and they love me 
because I'm taking them away for a week. All right, they want the Vogue pages, but come on, man. It's good if you're going to get like an extra 5K because you're going to shoot a little ad at the end of the day because the light's right. Some bird is running up the Taj Mahal or something like that. So... (laughs) True, yeah. and I'm telling you, I've got the I've got them on my side because by day three, you know they're running to the loo, they got dodgy tummies, they can't stand India. It's not what they wanted it to be. It's not spiritual enough. It's too hectic stuff. But you know what is spiritual? That five k they know that's sitting in their account as soon as they get off the plane. <laughs> that's quite spiritual yeah so Tony apart from the obvious which is your great energy you're a great talker very articulate you're a businessman you know what you want you're a hard worker what else makes a good photographer and what makes them forget just photography there's people that take a good shot but then there's people that turn themselves into an artist with their photography I mean you just finish a show at the same time as us in Tandon at the Saatchi Gallery yeah. last year, which was amazing. Yeah. Yours was for the David Bowie shots. Ours for the Richard Hamilton nightlifes. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great event. Incredible. Particularly amongst uh, the, the lockdown scenario. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, it was tough. Yeah, you know, but we it, uh, bobbed and weaved and, yeah. you know, we made it happen regardless yeah. of coronavirus or not. I think it was a testament to our personalities. Yeah, we're going to try and take that show back to where people can see it because too many people miss that show. Mm. Because from my point of view, I mean, I, I, I love your work and I love Nat Bowen and I love there's so many good, so many good artists. Yeah. At Asachi. And I just speaking for me, I, I, I'm, I'm really desperately trying now to organize those 22 two meter prints back into a room where people can see them. Because they're a beautiful set of pictures of David, definitely. What was it like working with him? Because that was obviously years okay, so, over the years. Okay, so the way it worked was this is a very interesting story about oh, me and, and I want to I want to add something. Where I live in Locks Bottom, yeah, which is in Kent, yeah. so that is like almost between Bromley and yeah. and Alpington. Yeah, down the road is a school called Ravenswood. Yes, there's two. There's Ravensbourne and Ravenswood. Yeah, he went to Ravenswood. Yeah, he'd gone to the Ravens. Yeah, mad. When I when I when I really when he passed away a few years ago, I started reading about you know. His, his bio and stuff. Cause yeah. I knew obviously who he was and I, I yeah. adored his music, but that was it. You know, maybe he was a bit before my time. I'm 35 years of age. Yeah. Um, you have to be in a time to love somebody. Yeah. He was a little bit before my time, but I appreciated who he was. Yeah. And then I realized he was actually from my neck of where I live. You know, yeah. he, he went to Raven. Didn't it? Wasn't he born in Seven Oaks or somewhere like that? Or? I think he was born in Bromley or somewhere. Like okay. That. Yeah. So uh, what a small world, but yeah. Anyway, what was it's it a like? Very to- small world. Well, uh, the way I met him, was that I was in the Tate Britain. Right. And I'm eight and a half, nine years of age. And we used to use the Tate Britain because we lived next door. We lived in Millbank. So there's the Tate Britain on the river, long before they, they, they managed it. And, and the river used to overflow. It used to come over the wall all, along that grove in the road. It was full. And it was a, a real threat to the, all, all the paintings in the, in the vaults in the Tate. So they were sorting that out. So it's about this time. So... And, and the river's just a mess, a green plankton with builder's yard flowing down. You cannot believe what the River Thames looked like in those days. So I'm going back to, say, what, 62. So I'm in the gallery and we're doing a little bit of a kind of like to do this thing like he. Not kiss chase because it's just guys. And like we didn't get the girls wouldn't, you know, that came later, the kiss chase, right? It was cool. Good, good, good game that. But you caught a girl and then she had to kiss you. It was great. 
You know that one? Yes. Oh, it's really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I Kiss chase. Yeah, that's how I got pretty girls kissing mm-hmm. ugly geezer like me. Anyway, the <laughs> thing was, we're playing He and I'm running and I'm hiding and I'm in this gallery and there's this unusual person standing there with a shoulder bag, with hair really way, way down his back. And I turn and I, and, and I look and, and I, I said, hello, are you a man or a woman, I said, because I'm a cheeky kid. Kids do that kind of direct question. <laughs> and he said to me, well, are, you, are you a boy or a girl? Because I had like a mop of blonde hair. I said, oh, that's not very, oh. And I, didn't, I didn't know how to answer that. You know, and then some other dudes arrived, some friends, and we were chatting to David Bowie. David Bowie was in the gallery, and we were talking to him. We didn't know who Bowie was. We just thought he was like a kind of unusual dude because he had very unusual dress. And he was an art student at the time. He was very, <clears throat> very way ahead, long. Anyway, great man. Um, so let's go to 1977. Let's be in Joanne Lapin, and let's be near the Cannes Film Festival. Okay. And let's watch Bianca Jagger coming down the street with David Bowie. Bianca Jagger had just recently kind of declared that she was not going to be staying with Mick Jagger. They had this very fabulous wedding a few years before. Jagger is, of course, friends with Bowie. But Bowie had made himself very attractive and Bianca was obviously having a little kind of like scene with him. And a great impresario called Michael White was throwing a party for the stars in his villa in Joan Lapin. Now, you've got to remember that I was already clicking away now. I'd be start, I started to work for the Italian Vogue. I was working with the French, and it was going well. It's a few years after leaving O'Neill. Yeah. And so uh, I took this great picture of Bowie and Bianca, and two years later I was at a party uh, in London, in Chelsea, and this woman came over and said, I'd like you like to introduce you to David. I said, Bailey, I know him. I know him. I know him. Where is he? The old bastard. I know, I know him. It's great. I love <laughs> Bailey. I, 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 I was fascinated with David Bailey as a kid. I still am because I still admire him. I, I love his work ethic. But the thing is, um, it wasn't David Bailey. It was David Bowie she wanted me to meet. So he came over and we got him to chat and we were talking. And he'd been through a few things. And he wanted to ask me if I might take some pictures of him because by then I was cracking on. I was doing six shoots a week, sometimes more. I always did more than uh, one shot, one shoot a day. So I'd have like a magazine come in like L and we'd finish at three. And then some dudes arrive at 4.30 who were going to pay me some money. So editorial didn't pay any money, but the advertisers did. So I'd do an editorial half a day and I'd get like the pages, the Vogue, the, you know, the, 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 the tear sheets. And you had to have those because you had to have your name on those. That's how the advertisers found you. And then like a nice advertiser, like Burberry's would come in, I'd do a shoot. And so he, he had asked me, seeing my name around, if I'd take some pictures, through Coco Schwarber standing next to him. Coco was this kind of person that protected David Bowie and she loved him and she was very professional and really good at her job in the detail. And she said, we'll call you. So the next day she called me and she said, David's free in two days. Can you fit him in? I said, yeah, I can fit him in. 
<laughs> although Funny did, enough. Although I did do a shoot in the evening from that shit. So the first shoot I did was in my studio in 99 Farringdon Road. And David came whistling up the stairs and he had a real great way of walking. And he walked straight and we kept the doors open so he wouldn't have any in buzzing. Where are you? Can't get in. None of that. Whoa. No, no, no. The doors... The doors to the Trojan city of Troy were open, and I am I am in Troy, and he's coming in to see me. He doesn't need an, a horse to hide in. He's coming. Are we watching him come out the car, step out the car, come up the stairs, bound up the stairs, and we're ready to go. We go upstairs. I had a split duplex studio of about six thousand square feet. It was beautiful, and he came upstairs where I do all the shoots, and I had all the vinyls here. And I had over 7,000 vinyl records. And he spent about half an hour, because he was kind of ready to go. There was no real hair and makeup. He had a, he had a pretty, like, makeup artist with him and, 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 and some dude with his clothes. So he spent a long time picking the vinyls. And then we just, we, we had the decks and he put the vinyls on. I took the pictures. And it went well. It went so well. Because what he found in that vinyl collection was things that he hadn't really <coughs> been checking out just recently. And I do remember back in that day, 110th Street, across 110th Street by Bobby Womack, because he played it a lot, was something that turned his... It turned his and that happened, that happened with George Michael and me in my studio. It did. It was extraordinary. Uh, but I'll sit with David for a second. So David played, and we got on really well, and that was it. So why did that happen? Well, as a photographer, you've got a lot of power. Camera gives you a lot of power. It's a very powerful uh, unit. Very, it's it's it, it's the device of dreams. If you are, if you carry the camera, if you're using the camera, I like to operate when I'm shooting film because it gives me status on the room. If I'm on my seventh donut and I'm by the script looking at a monitor as a director, I'm not happy. I'm immobilized. So I like to <laughs> put the array on me, get get the red, get get whatever I'm using. And I'll, even if I'm camera B or C, I've got to have a camera around me. And I'm telling you, I'm shooting stuff and it's like I'm rolling and I'm, there's no, no slates or anything. I'm just, and I get great stuff. I just made that beautiful film called Thames, starring my son who wrote it. You know, we've got McGee films and just in the last 10 months we've, we've written, directed three films that have mm. won awards. Congratulations. They've won big awards. They've won big, uh, great. Auto is on uh, Amazon Prime. You just go to Amazon Prime and say Auto, A-U-T-O. Bang, it comes up. It's amazing. I'm so in love with the film Auto. I love Shattered, our first film. First film, February 2020. Second film, September, Auto. Third film, December 2020, Thames. Thames is a dude of a film. It's got the best intro I've ever seen since Saul Bass. And what are these films about? They're about London, they're about child trafficking, they're about murder, they're about uh, a plot to uh, blow up London because of Brexit. They're great. And uh, Toronto Film Festival gave us a laurel. We won an award at the Rhodes. And they're still coming up because it's, they, they haven't been judged because of the lockdown. So are we shooting another short just yet? No, we're shooting a feature and we're just w getting around to what what that feature will be because we're watching everything. We watch everything. We watch The Terror. <coughs> we watch Your Honour. We watch 
the serpent. We watch everything. We're looking at all the young. We look at Vanessa Kirby's stuff. We're looking at everybody. We're a production house, and we are in love with film, and we have reference all the time. So if we're talking to an actor and he's reading lines, we do ask him to sort of just quickly catch up with Antonioni's work or Pasolini's work because that's the gravitas, that's the noir, that's the film noir levels that we want to work with. Okay, so if we go back to the 80s again, the early 80s, um, I'm already like making a hell of a lot of money. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely turning over nearly two million. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now you work it out. That's good though. I've got the most beautiful car parked on the pavement downstairs. It's a drop head. So I had a drop head Bentley. And then I thought, nah, it's a bit kind of, uh, uh, it, it was too golf, golf clubby. I felt like I was going to play golf. So I wanted something really fabulous. And I went to LA and I saw Tony Perkins from Psycho driving down Rodeo, you know, Mercedes 280 SE 3.5, the dream car, the stacked headlight one with a drop head. Mm. And Barry Berens and his wife was next to him. And they looked amazing. They had baseball caps on and it just looked cool. And I went back and I, and I checked them out and I, I was chatting to Charles Saatchi and Saatchi said, David Hockney's got one of those and he wants to sell it because he can't drive it because he's half blind and he's useless at driving cars. Great movie. Anyway, I bought the car from David Hockney. Lovely. And that's the car I photographed Kate, the first pictures ever taken of Kate Moss I photographed in there. Yeah, that photograph, that iconic photograph of Kate. Yeah. Where she suddenly comes to life and looks at the camera as if she's, she's like, she reminds me, the way she looks at that camera, she looks like that chick who says, Am I re- are you ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille? Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard, where she just checks the camera. She knows the camera's lying. Mr. DeMille. And that's what Kate did. I was like shooting, totally not interested. You look at the contact sheet, and then bam, she just connects. Woof, and you see what's going to go on there. Yeah. And she's 14 at the time. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. What was it like uh, working with her then? Lovely. And, and she's a child. But, so, you know. so you've got the, these list of very iconic people. Yeah. Um, I mean, what all the different personalities like? Were some of them tough to work with? Were some of them easy to easy going? Some of them were tough. You know, did they did could, just because you know you shot one of them? Did it mean that you had the black book now to 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 go and pick and choose who you wanted to work with? You, want, you 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 wanted to garner a reputation for being a cool guy, yeah, because there are great photographers <clears throat> who and being good fun as well. You want to be you want to what you want to do? You want to show a great interest. It's called Love Daily. It's called Daily Love. You fall in love for the day only. It doesn't go past. It never gets nocturnal. No way. No way. Jose, as we say, down Mexico way. We do not, we do not ever fall in love for real. No, no, no. You love, you fall in love with a girl next door, I believe. You don't fall in love professionally on a set. That's not love. That's, that's, that's some kind of superficial kind of nonsense. It's something to do with Kodak or ectochrome or or, or, or or the red or something, you know, because actors can do it. But if you really want to, if you want to ask me the question about, I love people when they come in. When they come in my studio, they get every part of me. I'm really interested in. I will not take a call. I will not, I won't, no, 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 no. I won't touch the phone or anything. No, I'm into it. I will make them, 
feel just for that moment. I get it. I get it. I mean, if you look at those pictures I took of David about, you can see what I did there. I manipulated mm. him. I did. I got him right there. I got him on the comfort zone. I got him in his nice silk suit. I got him playing with his fingers, like creating shapes like Prince Charles does, these weird sort of things they do with their fingers, like that and stuff like that. And I've got a very good picture of where he's doing something strange. It's like a hieroglyphic. I'm going to find it on a stone in Cairo one day, or Luxor, and I'm going to see what it means. It means something to do with... It's something to do with visits from, from outer space because he was making these shape signs with his fingers and all the time. And not the kind of fingers that they do in Italy. No, no, I'm not talking about those rude gestures from Italian um, uh, referees. I'm talking about <laughs> the fact that Bowie connected and he knew I was giving him time because I put the Bobby Womack here across 110th Street and some other great a track the Beach Boys did, which he loved, which he didn't really know about. Just the arrangement was just heaven. And I saw him use it late, later on in some of his music, yeah. So uh, Kate Moss then, what, what was she like? She was young at the time, but she, she always, always looking good. Okay, so here's an interesting one. So I'm in my studio in Farina Road this time again, and I'm photographing a boxer for Italian Vogue, and his name's Luke Massey, and he's a good boxer. And he was like of that generation of Chris Eubank, Gary Stretch, and all those dudes. So you've got boxers who were doing a bit of male modelling and then they were very quickly coming down to earth to discover that uh, <laughs> there isn't really any room for modelling when you're going to be a, become... So Luke had given up modelling and started to fight semi-professionally. And he was in the studio. And Sarah Dukas from Storm came round. Not really with any kind of it didn't matter because she was always coming into the studio. People used to pop in all the time. So she suddenly appeared with this incredible-looking kid who sat, I said, sit on the floor and watch the shoot. You know? So she sat next to the tripod, Kate, on the floor. And she um, was curious, and then Luke said, hey, Tony, you know, let's get, let's get that little kid in the picture with me. I think she, and Luke, you're imagining he's a boxer. He's great. He's built well. He looks fantastic. And... Um, picture there was like sun the sun had started to move around that was what it was so i said oh i'm gonna come on let's go downstairs because the sun i can't i wanted to get the sun in their face because there's nothing like the, the low sun in your face it kind of reveals another part of you it's very very powerful again i love one light i love one light uh i i live with one light scenario i don't like flat light so much it, it, it can look cool like at a wedding flat light but because it's a dress and stuff. But the thing is, when you go, okay, so we went downstairs and my car was there. And uh, I said, oh, let's do a shot in the car. So the car, this is before tickets and anyone gave you a hard time. You could just park on the pavement. And the roof was down, it looked great. And they sat in the car and the rest is history. There's the picture and it's a great picture. Uh, and and that was, that's, that's what happened. Then she just took off with Sarah. Sarah didn't really, she was upstairs, like she was like on the phone and doing loads of other stuff. She, she didn't come down and like stand by me when I did the shoot. More importantly, do you know that that role of film, here's the thing, a just testament to how busy we were. So as I say, you used to do about six to eight shoots a week. Yeah. You've got to edit as well. You yeah. Pre-produce as well. So it was like hectic. I reckon I... For 20 solid years, I worked 
absolutely unbelievably hard, which I was happy to do because I found what I love to do. So this one roll of film that I took Kate lay in my film cupboard. We used to have a film cupboard, literally hundreds of rolls of film. It was put on the shelf. It was found, I think, six years later, undeveloped. And it said on it, Kate Storm. And my assistant found it. Yeah. And he went to the, our, 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 our processors, Terry, Terry Davis, and he came back that afternoon, and there was the role. It was just amazing. So nobody ever saw the picture for eight years, or, or whatever, six years, um, because we never had any time to develop it. We just, like, put it through the motion just to make it feel, like, special in front of a camera going click, click. But that's quite cool in some ways because you know, like when people discover a lockup of Picassos or Andy Warhols that yeah. haven't been seen for 30, 40 years, yeah. they're the ones that collectors want because they're quite unique and they're yeah. forgot, forgotten about. Yeah. It's like when someone uh, buys a house and there's a bricked up wall, they knock down the wall and there's a knee type, type jag in there, you know, oh. it's only got like 10 miles on the clock or something. Yeah, that would be fun. God, that's never happened to me. I've <laughs> knocked a few walls down, let me tell you. Nothing there but another wall. But talking about walls, what are walls? Walls are, walls are there to be climbed, ladies and gentlemen. They're there to be scaled. And you find whatever you can. You find a bed sheet, you find a ladder, you take your girlfriend's blouse, you somehow find a way of getting over that wall. So in your life then, uh, uh, Mr. McGee, what, what, <laughs> how, many, how, many, how many challenges have you had to come over? And, uh, I, I think, you know, the... the, the, the I, I think they've always been there lurking and I've not really paid attention to them. I, I, yeah, it's my honest, honest... So your mindset is look past the challenges and look at your, your goal. But and any any advice for, like, not just photographers or anyone in arts, but business or life itself? Because, yeah. you know, we're, we're faced with challenges right now with yeah. lockdown, different yeah. tiers, yeah. coronavirus, you know, unemployment, yeah. debt, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. What's the mindset of a champion? How do they overcome that kind of stuff? I mean, it's pretty practical when you talk about debt that you need to realise that you can't take it on unless you can facilitate the debt. So although you're attempted to start a business because the business seems like a good idea, it's got to have some kind of practical commercial revenue. Even if just at the side you're selling donuts, pizzas and coffees at the side of your studio. You've got to, kind of, you've got to have some revenue come in. And that revenue, to be honest, has to slightly supersede your debt or your outgoings. Your incomings must be greater than your outgoings because to worry about debt is the beginning of the end for many artists. They cannot be free and they cannot fly. They become very disillusioned and frightened. An artist is a very, very... Very special person, very, 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 very beautiful and needs to be, sometimes they need to be managed and sometimes you just simply cannot look after their own affairs and you get this great person come into their life and they manage them and they do very, very well. You know, uh, they'll be painting and their partner, business manager will be on the Bitcoin business or on eBay or anything, just... Just to, just to help the thing. It's got to be fluid. Business has to be fluid, financially fluid. It has to work. You can't just expect 
the 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 light to come out. You've got to be able to work with bad light. You've got to be able to work with bad weather as a filmmaker, as a photographer. And you've got to turn things around. You'll be amazed at how good things can be. Whereas your prime, you're you, you, you're insisting that everyone sits around and waits for the clear blue sky. No, no, get shooting quickly. Redo it if you need to. But you know, just bear in mind that time is money, particularly on a set, and people have to be paid. And they want to work hard for you, but if you're making up this nonsense excuse about the bad light, and they don't want to learn, but they don't want to hear that. There is no bad light. You have to change your concept. You make your own light. Yeah, change your own concept. Make your own light. Yeah, I like that one. <laughs> so um, okay, so uh, going back to your, your your craft, you spoke about we spoke about some of the great people you worked alongside yeah. and shot. Yeah. What about the Best places around the world because you you're well travelled. You spoke about India. You spoke yeah. about all multiple different places and some of the biggest brands you work for. Vogue being one of them. Yeah. So places in the organisations. I would say that uh, um, I've been lucky enough to go all around the world at least twice, and I've got I've got a lot of time for South America. South America is not only beautiful to look at in its, with its gusto and its kind of tropicality and parts of Colombia, I cannot tell you. It's just heaven. The people are so, so wonderful. They're so up. They're so happy and they're kind of, they're, they're cool. I know they've had their terrible history with drugs and stuff like that, particularly Colombia. But that's not the Colombians' fault. That was the kind of disarray that one or two people, politicians, led that country into through the sale of narcotics in America. But just to, to, just to remain confident on the question, you know, I'm Irish and I love Ireland. Ireland is a beautiful, beautiful <coughs> country. I'm and, partly Irish as well. Yeah, and the Irish, are great. Lo- the Irish are so much fun to be around. I adore, I adore Irish women. I think they are beautiful. They really are. They're so free and, and, and funny and gorgeous and bright they're so super bright and of course the fellas are good as well of course they are I've got hundreds of cousins out there and they're great people but there's something about the woman the irish woman that, that not enough is said about they're, they're remarkable people australia i went to it's a beautiful country australia went right across from one side to the other did a calendar for a, a leading drink brand and it was heaven so we had three weeks to look for locations can you imagine in small aircraft and then a, a month to shoot, a seven-week shoot. I mean, everyone getting paid fortunes for just living a beautiful life. It was just heaven. I was rang up one morning by the Sunday Times, and the guy there, beautiful picture editor, said, look, I'm not coming, but I'd like you to go to India and go to <coughs> Calcutta and be with Mother Teresa, take some pictures. I know you're a Roman Catholic. I know you won't have a problem. And I know you'll take some great pictures. She's about to receive a serious amount of money from some Italian philanthropist. And you're going to take a picture of the check and him and her. It was a, 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 a husband and wife team. And so I went to Delhi, met the Prime Minister of, uh, 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 of India, and we flew to Calcutta, Italian ambassador to India, sorry. And we went to Calcutta and we met Mother. And Mother said to me, Mother T, she said, no, nah. 
She said, you're not going to take any photographs of me. I wrote a letter. I don't like my photograph being taken. I said, why? Because you're taller than everyone else? She said, what did you say? Because she's very short. I said, because you're taller than everyone else in the room. You don't want your picture taken. She said, oh, I think you'll have to hang around for a while. I've got some jobs for you. So she got me clear, cleaning up the shit in the house for about two weeks. Right. Two weeks of going to the oxygen tank place and getting the oxygen tanks for all the discarded babies that were going to die. So people would drop a baby in the curb, a newborn baby, hours old, and leave them there. End of. And she'd pick them up. And this room would have 55 babies on the floor. And I would stand with the nurses and we'd, I'd jump in a taxi and get another tank of oxygen. It was about a, a two-hour drive out of Calcutta to get to this place. And it was chaotic. So this chaos, it, it, it did something good for me. It made me truly realise just how fortunate I was. And the humility that rained down on me. And I got to know mother very good and proper way and took some beautiful photographs in the end and would sort of often visit the church in the middle of the night when there would just be nuns taking Holy Communion and it was a, and I took some great shots I'm very proud of and they remain some of my golden moments those and of course it, it, you know I don't want to be fickle but it's like a fashion shoot with all the nuns in their identical outfits kneeling down and Mother Teresa blessing them. And uh, Princess Di had arrived and it was good. And she died. So Diana died three weeks after I was there. And Mother Teresa died four weeks after I was there. So that was that was that was that was cool. That was difficult, but that was that was fantastic. This brings me on to this next part. So I don't know uh, so many photographers, probably because I'm more focused as a brand, would be house in the street art sector. But personally, I prefer a good bit of photography over a good bit of art. I think in a house or in a setting or a hotel, it's just so powerful. I feel like I can relate to it a lot more right. because it is real. Yeah. Um, so you've got the likes of, I know, uh, uh, Terry O'Neill, yourself. I know there's... Um, David Yarrow, he's been quite popular yeah. in some, some galleries. Very, very successful, very popular, because he brought the animal into your home. Yeah, well, I've actually got one. I've got um, a bison. Uh, it's called The Beast, going down my stairs. It's there, and I really, really Good like it. You. It's beautiful. Great. Be beautiful work. And I love animals and uh, everything Fantastic else. And then, and, then, and then there was another artist, photographer, that I was introduced to his work via the guy who owns the Richard Hamilton IP because he collects a lot of his yeah. photography. Mario, Mario Testino. Yeah. And if you look at everybody's, you know, prices of their photography yeah. and then their auction results, yeah. an outsider who's got a passive interest in art, passive interest yeah. in photography, they go, well, why is, it, why is the photography so much? But as you've just spoken, you've travelled the world, you've met these places, yeah. you've learnt your craft, yeah. you know, you've been inspired, you've been motivated, you've been educated, yeah. that all funnels in to your work. But how do you put a price on your own photography? Price, Tony. well, photog the price of photography is, is, is governed by the demand. 
and the demand comes through the auction houses. So, uh, for example, Sotheby's. You had one, didn't you? In Sotheby's, was it? Yeah, yeah. I've got a, I've got a. Well, I've got a photograph in, I've got a photograph in Sotheby's coming up. I've just had one in Bonhams, and it's a, it's, it's, it's an absolute delight. Did it do well? Yeah, because you know, I'm a, it's unbelievable to even think this, but you know, I'm approaching seventy, and it's a weird thing. I don't feel seventy; I feel thirty. But that doesn't—it doesn't mean, Jack, because you've got to—you've got to plan for your future. You can't, you know, if you are a little bit inactive, you can't really face the plane and the big crowded studio and all the rest because it's—it's pretty stressful, no matter what you are and how you govern it. You—you've got to take on board the stress. And I could never do six shoots in a in a week and fly to the moon. It could never happen. I just. I mean, I was alive. I was on fire when I did that kind of work scenario. But if I look at what photography gathers itself up, and, 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 and you've got to understand that, okay, let's look at, let's, okay, you mentioned Mario Testino. I know Mario very well indeed, and I have a very, very nice history with him. But when I was <clears throat> really moving, like, my wings had really been fixed firmly on my on my on my back. Um, I was going to Peru, and I had a phone call from this young guy called Mario, and he. This is very. I've got to give it a year. It's 1977, and he said, "You're going to Peru." Somebody was mentioning, "I'm Peruvian. Can I come with you? I could assist you." I said, "Come and see me." And I had a studio in Longacre in Covent Garden and the whole place stunk of oranges. It was beautiful. And Mario came in because I think he was living around the corner in some sort of DOS house. And he was a nice guy, Mario, just, you know, a really lovely man. He, he, he was a lovely guy then and he's a lovely guy now. Mm. And his fortune has been based on the fact that people have always loved working with him. And I know, I know people who work with him very well and they enjoy his energy and his input Good. So I explained that I couldn't take him to Peru because we'd entered into a visa documentation. We were leaving in four days and the, the, visa had, the visas had already been worked out and um, the assistant was chosen. And it was it probably... I mean, the guy who came to Peru was great, a lovely man, but he was terrified whereas Mario would have helped us a great deal, and I do regret that one thing of never ever taking him as my assistant to Peru, because we went all over Peru, mm. the entire width of it. So we landed in Lima, we went to Arequipa, to Cusco, to Machu Picchu, to uh, Quito. I mean, it was incredible. And so um, he, he didn't, he didn't uh, join us, but he went on to become busy photographer within 10 years and he's successful then, isn't it yeah yes. massively successful and he's taken some great photographs and his photograph say of kate will, will appear in phillips and she even if she's showing her fanny or sitting on the toilet still reaches 80 or ninety thousand pounds so let's look at the person who spends that Let's analyse that person because there's the answer. It's not because America say no. It's one hundred and fifty. No, I want two hundred and twenty. No, I'd like two hundred and eighty. 
And he's probably going to get it because what that person in the room wants who bids for that is fame. And he wants the power. He wants to tell the room that he bought that picture. And that's what it's about. There's a lot of flexing of muscles going on in buying, in buying photography. So if you go and you buy an Anson Adams and it's 300000 or an Irving Penn for 250000 or the great German um, photographer, I love his work, it's extraordinary, the Stock Exchange in Tokyo, $7 million. Right. Wow. Yeah. Because when I own, when I have in my portfolio $2 billion and I'm an industrialist and I'm only 38 years of age, a bit like billions, nice clothes, red hair, great series. Amazing. I love him. He's a, he, he, Solid. He's a friend of mine. He's great. You know, it's nothing. He just picks up the phone and he bids and he buys because it's power. Money is power. Art is power. Money and art is power. Photography and money is power. Without each other, it's nothing. It doesn't exist. All right. So your your take on the art market now from photography to, let's say, anything to do with arts, coronavirus, it kicked off, well, it was actually the anniversary yesterday of one year the UK being in lockdown yeah. or some kind of restrictions. Yeah. Um, I had an interview with Coke too, and he said he, he was panicking at the start. He's a New York artist, yeah. street artist. Um, he's been, a, you know, he's done collabs with Adidas, Converse, some of the biggest brands in the world. And he said at first he was worried because all of his shows across the world were systematically being shut down or, or stopped. And then he said confidence sort of slightly changed and he was getting calls from doctors or accountants, people that he would never deemed as his, his typical collectors, yeah? And they would um, phone up and, and buy some of his art. And what that was demonstrating at that point is people are now looking to preserve their money in art and they're collecting it, not yeah. necessarily just to enjoy it or to, to decorate their home or office, but to preserve their money and to protect their money. Have you found that kind of same kind of, you know, different type of people getting into the art, the art market now? Or how have you seen it evolve over the last 12 months? There's a lot of money in the art market if you... You do your homework, you do your due diligence, you don't impulse buy, you don't emotionally buy. You buy and you're willing to let go. You're willing to forego the sale. You have a limit. You've got to know your limitations. So from I'm a, I buy art. I buy photography. I buy, I buy a lot of photography. Can, can I ask who, who you've got in your portfolio? Where would I begin? I've got the most, I think I've got probably one of the best collections photographs in the country okay it's not on the size of elton john bless him uh but it's way up there i have about 220 really great photographs uh and they range from okay let me run through who and I'm is that to collect or yeah, to, to make collect, money or to is collect it to make money it, yeah so it's a mixture it's to collect to make money because i bought a lot of work in the late 70s during the 80s so you're sitting on a small fortune now, or have, a large fortune? Yeah, I have it. I have it in in in. in I have it vaulted in in in, in 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 in. It's tied up in with with uh, Hiscox, and it's very very insured. 
But, you know, for example, I would go in the early 80s to Henri Cartier-Bresson, to Martine Frank, his wife, and I would buy two prints, and I would spend about $800. Both those prints now were $50,000. Quite a return on your investment. Easy, easy. I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I bought, um, so I bought uh, a beautiful print by Irving Penn. It's worth 300,000 pounds. Beautiful. How much would you say your whole entire portfolio is worth? About six million. Really? Mm. You've done very well. Well, I did well because I studied the craft. I studied my business. It's like a musician. It's like, but, you know, Bob Dylan is making a hell of a lot of money with his art. Yeah. But he does, I mean, I adore Bob Dylan's lyrics. I think he's one of the greatest lyricists. He, you know, I, I think there are great lyricists out there. There's Brian Ferry, there is Bob Dylan. I mean, lyrics, like, they just, they're just unbelievable. They're like sunlight on the water. They're amazing. They're so powerful. But I did my homework, and I quickly realized, so people were coming to me in the middle 70s, I'd see, I'd seen a picture in, in, in a magazine. So, can I buy a print? So, I was settling for 50 quid. So, I was giving them a print for 50 quid. And then it went to about 70 quid a few years later. Um, and I sell, I sell a lot of my work. I do. I sell my work. But I made my money, my, 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 my fortune, if you like, by buying photography in the 80s. So, I bought Helmut Newton, I bought Richard Avedon. I went to Avon's studio. I was introduced to Dick by some dudes I was working with. I had the same with Peter Beard. Bought lovely Peter Beard. Peter Beard. Peter Beard now is going to is going to cost you eighty grand. I, 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 do you know I gave Peter Beard three hundred dollars for a print. Mm. I pretty well own anything of any 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 real heroic photographic piece I own. Yeah, Salgado. The better one I own, you know, Lartigue, the, the most important one, his, his aunt flying down the stairs, signed by him, properly signed. Not, 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 a, not a print from, from, from some kind of uh, society that looked after his negative. No, 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 no. These are all prints made in the lifetime of the artist, signed mostly in my company. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. That's strong. So do you, uh, apart from photography, do you own canvas works and stuff? I do, I do. Um, while we talk, I'm going to take a picture of you. All right, yeah. perfect. Yeah, because... This is the first for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so what camera is that you're using? This camera is a, be- it's a combo. So this camera is a beautiful combination of um, a number of things. See, I look for the glass first. Okay. So the glass, so it's... It's a Canon camera, Canon camera, and it's two things. Okay, the the, the piece of glass, a thirty five mil one point four red ring glass. It's a special edition lens. It's the sharpest piece that I own in my arsenal. Okay, and I've got lenses by everybody, but this this piece for some reason I don't know how they got it right, so right. It's just it's phenomenal. I'll I'll send you a little print this and you'll see beautiful the incredible detail in it was was that it two shots and you're done uh, no i'm just just lining up so how much would a camera like that cost um about, i think about eight grand wow am i meant to be doing anything or am i just uh, <laughs> just talking no. <laughs> no i'll just snap away as we talk all right good 
always working. You are a proper businessman, even in your own interview. Yeah, I like to work. I mean, if you're shy of work, you you won't realise your dream. Yeah, get the work ethic. It's not it's it's not square to be hardworking. You know, I'll tell you what. Don't drink too much. Avoid drugs. Come on, come on. Let's be real here. But although people tried them, they're horrible. Yeah, although I feel like shit. I wouldn't support it, but obviously people have done certain things. But artists, they typically get a lot of the emotion and the inspiration through. Do they? The drink and drugs sometimes. That's very interesting. I mean, look at Hamilton. I mean, he was known for his heroin. Jean-Michel Basquiat, Andy Warhol. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't promote it. I would say Warhol, no. I'd say Warhol was shy and timid and would have soup. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he, you wouldn't find Warhol with, 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 with a gram of Coke on, in his pocket in Studio 54. There were artists. Yeah. And they've, they, but, but I can tell you that Rosenkist never. No, no, no. Think about, okay, Picasso. Picasso didn't take drugs. No way. No, maybe when he was 21 and he was living in France, in Paris with Man Ray, he tried them. But he quick, very quickly, no way. Well, not with his workload. And let's look at, say, the Beatles who experimented with acid. Um, it had to be done. If you read about the Beatles... They were, and I know about this, they were given a workload that you could not even contemplate. Their workload by Brian Epstein was off the Richter scale. They were constantly tired all of the time. And the bickering started because they were just knackered. Yeah. And it started with George Harrison just announcing one day in the back of a taxi with the other three that he didn't want to do it anymore. He's so depressed. He's so tired. Because what they had it to do in the next six months was awesome. They had to create three hit singles and two hit albums. That was the deal they were on. So workload took them to an escape. And generally I find people who, a top advertising executive, he's got so much stress, his clients are on him, or he might be a creative head, he will, he will give himself an addiction, whatever that is. could be kebabs, but you know what? He's got an addiction because he needs a release. And so I would just, I, I, I'm here, nearly 70, to say that uh, once or twice I tried things, but I can tell you now, don't waste your time and your beautiful energy and your gift that God gave you, your blood in your veins. You owe it to your the relatives that you have, all the beautiful Mm. You know, you, you, you're just, what is this all about? And surely not after lockdown. I, I appeal to you, don't, don't just go back out there and burn yourself into some kind of compost heap. Take this lockdown period as something where you, 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 you've been able to stare at the vodka bottle, you can stare at the wine, and don't go there. You, don't, you control it, control any addiction whether that's gambling, sex. The only addiction I approve of is hard work. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll second that. So on the hard work um, topic, what's planned for you over the next, let's say, five years or so? Over the next five years. So what's your got, vision? Okay, so we've got McGee Films, which I started with my son, Maximilian. Maximilian went to film school in New York. He came back and he was 
good to go. And he said, I've written a short, will you direct it? I said, I'll take a look at it. And I liked it. It was good. I said, I'd like to put my style on it because it it, scripts are delivered to directors without any real filmatic style or any theme or any kind of colour sense. Or So I decided I want to shoot in black and white and I want to shoot it only with this kind of feeling of um, a dream. Okay. Because it's about a lawyer who's having an affair with a guy and a, and his wife. It's very mixed up piece. It's very very good, and wow, I'm I, I love that film. And it's on Amazon Prime. So you go Amazon Prime, shattered, and, she, and this beautiful girl. I don't know her name, Alexa, isn't it? Alex, hey, shattered, McGee films, and she says, coming right up, Tony. And it's there. It's just on your screen. You can watch 15 minutes. It's pure. It's beautifully cut. I shot it. So it looks kind of all right. And uh, we made Auto, as I said earlier, and we made um, Thames. So I'm going to direct a feature film. I'm looking forward to it. I get my I get my room full of really great people. I get the people I want to work with. I handpick them. I talk to them. I carry them on the same plane as I am, I share my work ethic, my stories, my solutions. Filmmaking is a, is a series of daily solutions. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is pretty well set in stone. It has to be because you have to be pre-produced. But you still need that magnificent turn where you just see something and it makes the difference in the shot where we use one camera or three cameras, but you've got to kind of somehow overcompensate so that when you get to your editor and you're with your editor, you've got a hell of a lot of different different ways to go on it. Yeah, Or not. You can be like Scorsese, which everything is rigidly worked out to the lens and to the measurement from the lens to you. It's just done. He will... He's, he's, he's phenomenal, Martin Scorsese. He's amazing. Unbelievable. He is. Bless him. And so uh, I'm going to make a feature. I'm going to continue shooting stills for various luxury brands. I don't work so much with the magazines because all my teams retired or they died or they just lost interest because it's hard work for not very much money. So if you do 20 years on Vogue, normally the editor wants to leave. She wants to spend more time with her husband who she doesn't recognise anymore before she, she drops dead. And Fair enough. Yeah. And so I'm going to be working like that. I'm, I'm, I've always got a concept and a, an idea in my mind. So let's, let, 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 let everything open up. And I'll go to Asseline. I'll go to a few book people and I'll pitch some ideas. I'd like to do a book. I would like to do a book this year as well. What that is, I'm not decided yet. But... Any other individual or any other, you know, cool places you want to go and work in? Yeah, I do want to uh, be a player in Los Angeles. I do want an office. I want an office on Wiltshire next to David Fincher and upstairs from Ridley Scott. And I do want to be a player. I want to, I, I'm a filmmaker. I am. And I can work with young directors as well. And I can work with good producers. Yeah, that's where I see myself in the next 20 years. Powerful. Yeah. Good, yeah. good. And uh, any any kind of financial goals you want to hit? Well, I want to make money. I want to make uh, a shed load of money. Definitely. It's very, very... 
I want to go back to that Parisian restaurant on order whatever they've got that costs the most money and I'm going to eat it on my own and be there and just watch the traffic go past. And I want that freedom. I was going to ask you. Every man, every woman in this world deserves to have that freedom. Absolutely. I was going to ask you because you said a really good quote there, which is quite simple. Art is power. Money is power. So what, so by the obvious, what does money do for you? Well, money is obviously, as I've mentioned a few times in this conversation, is, is freedom. It gives me, a, it gives, you know, it's, it's the passport. It's, it's, it's great. It's not smug. It's not smug. I don't do that daily checking my account. All right. I, I don't think I've checked my account for about 10 days. I, I don't. I don't dwell on that, those figures. I don't. What I, I'm interested in is what I'm going to make in the next seven days rather than checking what's going in. You know, no. No, it's dead money. It's like I want new money. Yeah. Fair enough. New blood. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, where can people find you if they were to check you out? And, they can uh, find where- me any time. They just call me. <laughs> I think I'm an old-fashioned guy. Just call me. What about in your socials? And if they were to buy a, an original Tony McGee, where could they find it? And what sort of prices could they be expected to pay? Well, I reckon um, we can talk about that because it's kind of a bit flippant to just... Um, but if I like you enough, I'll drop my prices. Good. I've been known to drop them considerably. All right. <laughs> What's your website? What's your uh, Instagram? My Instagram is um, a good question. So it's, it's like a it's like a, a, a little dash and Tony McGee, like Sorry. a little under under what they call it under by underscore underscore. Yeah, <laughs> and then you got your website. Got my website, Tony McGee. You can check that out. Cool. See what I've been up to. Um, McGee films. I'm so proud of, as I've been saying. Give me a little part in one. I love. I love to do that. You know what? I I like I like the underworld. I've always had some kind of connection through my dad, as I said. I I don't, I mean, I, I just watch that terror thing and there's a lot of violence, but the violence comes from a polar bear that is an uncontrollable kind of thing going on, on ship and on the ice, because it's a polar bear that's gradually becoming out of control because it sees its wilderness being, being invaded. But it's, but more practically, it's eating polluted human being because a human being on that expedition is dying from lead poisoning because the cans all excrete this terrible lead into the meat. And so when he bites your head off and swallows your head, he's making himself very ill. So I won't, I won't tell you the end. It's, I, I, I thought it was great. Bravo, Mr. Scott and Scott Free. Beautiful. beautiful I need to see this. Beautiful to look at. Wow. Right. And you know, Richard Harris's son, wow, amazing. He's so good in it. So good. Great. Great to see him in that role. Yeah. Jared, yeah. Um, and um, yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Last question. Um, so I came up with a slogan, a catchphrase, or a mantra, yep. which is called Be Happy, Never Content. So Be Happy, Never Content. If I were to ask you, what does be happy, never content mean to Mr. Tony McGee? Well, be happy is always the phone ringing. The phone rings and it's a new job and it's a new experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I never get over that. Never get over that. Never get over the guy ringing me from, from anywhere in the world and saying, hi, can you hear me? 
Ah, oh, the line's not very good. Okay, well, we're going to try because I don't have any other time. I'm going to shout. Can you get here? So where's here? Okay. And it's some beautiful part of Stockholm. We want to shoot with you next week. And you're getting booked as a, for something you love. Oh, my God. So that's, that's what I want. I want that. Is it, what is it? Is it attention disorder? Not really. It's, it, as I said to you, I just adore the work. I adore using the camera, realising the shot. Wow, it's so exciting. I, I, I work well with film crews because I bring that kind of level of love to the thing. You know, I'm not, I'm not sort of, you know, like, oh, I've got to leave. You just cover the shot off for me and I'll look at it. No, 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 I have to stay to the end. Make sure it's right. I have to. Second unit, I do myself. So if there's if the sunsets to be sharpness, I mean, I did all the second unit on Thames, and if you look at Thames, my latest short, I think the intro is ah, oh, it's just I photographed Saul Bass back in the early eighties. Saul Bass famously did all the opening titles for Alfred Hitchcock's films. They're incredible. Yeah, and they check them out. All right, cool. Yeah. Tony, thank you for your time, mate. Uh, this is going to be on my podcast uh, and also YouTube in the next coming weeks. Yeah. No doubt when things open up back up, me and Katie okay. Erie yeah. will be seeing you at Quo Vardis, <laughs> no doubt, having a few drinks. We'll pop in there for a glass of wine. It'd be great. Why not? It's a nice place. And talk about some ideas. You know, I love the tank of ideas. That's the thing. You know, you do get. And particularly, you mentioned Katie. She's such a visionary. She's a wonderful girl, Katie Erie. Lots of energy. Yeah. Bit wacky at times, but wacky's love it. Wacky's good. Love it. The wacky's good. I've only ever worked with the wacky. Look at Mother Teresa. She, she was a wacky girl. That's it. Nice yeah. one. <laughs> All right. Thank you for, for your time. Cheers, Tony. Uh, my pleasure. Cool.